women, vengeance, and justice. They are a gang of women in rural India that take on domestic abusers with bamboo canes and other offenders, um, men who cheat on their wives, men who rape, even those who are drinking a lot, and they basically enact justice themselves with their canes. That's Elizabeth Flock. We talk with her about her book, The Furies. It follows three remarkable women in the U.S., in India, and in Syria who took justice into their own hands to defend themselves, other women, and their communities. Then Stephen Robert Miller tells us about his book, Over the Seawall, Tsunamis, Cyclones, Drought, and the Delusion of Controlling Nature. It was recently featured in The New Yorker. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. In ancient Greek mythology, the Furies were goddesses who came out of the ground to exact vengeance on men for their misdeeds. According to Euripides, they were three in number. And that's the number of the modern-day Furies in Elizabeth Block's book of that title. They include a young mother from Alabama who shot and killed her rapist after an assault where he threatened to kill her. A Dalit, what used to be called untouchable, woman in India who organized a band of women to fight back against gender-based violence And finally, a Kurdish-Syrian warrior in a thousand-strong all-female militia that battled ISIS in Syria. The Furies explores these women's lives with nuance and compassion. It doesn't shrink from the moral issue of responding to violence with violence, but it also shows that these ultimately ordinary women did what they felt they had to do to fight back against oppression. Elizabeth Flock is an Emmy Award-winning journalist whose work has been featured in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Atlantic. She's the host of Blind Plea, a podcast about criminalized survival. Elizabeth Flock, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you. Nice to be here. So this book, The Furies... Women, Vengeance, and Justice, is about three women who fought back against oppression. That's Brittany Smith from Alabama, Anguri Daharia from India, and Chichak Mustafa Zibo, a Syrian Kurd. First, give us a snapshot of the three before we go further into depth with the story of each one. And let's start with Brittany. Yeah, so this book follows these three women in different corners of the world. Um, Brittany Smith is a single mom from Alabama who I began interviewing almost five years ago now, and she shot and killed a man that she said raped her and attacked her in her home. And when I first started following her case, uh, she was making a self-defense claim saying, I shot this person who raped me and refused to leave my home, and um, she was on trial for murder. And Anguri Daharia? Yeah, so Anguri is the leader of a vigilante gang in northern India. She even calls herself that. Um, They are a gang of women in rural India that take on domestic abusers with bamboo canes and other offenders, um, men who cheat on their wives, 
men who rape, even those who are drinking a lot, and they basically enact justice themselves with their canes. And the third story is about Chichek, who is the member of an all-female Syrian Kurdish militia called the YPJ. They came to fame when they fought ISIS back several years ago and actually were instrumental in vanquishing ISIS. These female fighters who are in this, you know, thousands strong all-female militia. And uh, they were also fighting against the gender-based violence of ISIS and are now fighting the Turkish state. And when I heard about them as well, I knew that they had to be part of the book, even though I'm not traditionally a war correspondent. I felt like if I am following women who defend themselves around the world, they absolutely have to be part of it. In the first chapter of the book, you call out the role played by the male culture of honor. Why is that? Yeah, so I didn't go into it expecting to look at that. I sort of naturally gravitated towards stories that I found. And I, you know, I researched stories all around the world of women who fought back in different places in Mexico and the Ukraine, and ultimately landed on these three stories simply because I found them the most compelling. I had access to the women and was really interested in the ways that they had taken up arms and said that they had no other option because institutions had failed them. Um, like they had gone to the cops or courts for help and they hadn't helped or that there was the total absence of the state in all three cases. But the longer I followed them, the more I realized that all the word honor kept coming up again and again. And so I started reading books about cultures of honor um, and realized that even though they were in three very different places and cultural contexts, all three of them were in communities that hinged on the idea of honor, of of men protecting their honor. You know, in rural Alabama, it was sort of like um, men were expected to fight for their honor, get into physical fights to prove it, and often beat women as part of that. And then, you know, in India, we hear about honor killings, and honor was a, hu- is a huge concept there in terms of yeah, so I guess I I became fixated on this and the role that honor played in in having men feel the need to enact violence and women to fight back to uh, protect themselves. Now, Brittany Smith, uh, her story is really remarkable. Tell us what happened to her and tell us about Todd Smith. I mean, you gave us a, a brief outline of that, but how did this go down? Yeah, so Brittany, um, as a single mom, she had finally gotten a house for herself after leaving her husband, who was actually abusive. Um, and she has four kids, and she was excited to make this house into a home, but she felt pretty lonely um, after separating from her husband. And she decided to get a puppy for the kids before they moved in with her. And she bought the puppy from a man named Todd Smith, who bred pit bulls just across the state line in Tennessee. He was someone she'd met before locally, and she reconnected with him. And when she did, Todd was sort of um, notorious around town for a lot of drinking and drug-related fights. Um, He actually had 80 prior arrests, though I don't think Brittany knew that. 
she bought the puppy and then kind of they stayed in touch. And on the night of the shooting, it was bitterly cold. Todd was out. It, you know, later emerged that he'd done a huge amount of meth and was also drinking. And he called Brittany saying he needed a ride. He was stranded in a park. She and her brother went to go get him. He came to her house. She told him he could crash there, but not to make a regular thing. And then sometime after that is when he assaulted her. And a rape kit later showed that she had 33 wounds on her body. She called her brother ultimately for help. Uh, Her brother came over. They got into an altercation. And ultimately, Brittany picked up the gun and shot Todd. So her case is a little bit complicated. But I think the, the thing that kept me coming back to it was that. Because a lot of times when women defend themselves in the U.S. against abusers, their cases are not straightforward. It's not... It's not a case where a guy came charging at you and you shot him and it's clear self-defense. There's almost always in cases of abuse, a little bit of a lag. A woman can't fight back right in the moment of imminent danger. And as a result, they lose their self-defense claims and they end up spending sometimes decades in prison. Right. But actually, it seems such a clear case of self-defense. Yes, it's complicated, but she had been raped and beaten by this man, Todd Smith, just Earlier in the evening, he was obviously refusing to get out of her house at this point. Her brother went in to defend her. He knew that because she had she had managed to tell him what had happened. And then Todd Smith begins to actually try to kill her brother. She would have had no reason to think that he wouldn't have gone on to kill her because he had threatened so. Why was she not protected under Alabama's stand your ground defense? Yeah, you know, looking back on it, I really think that substance abuse had a huge role to play. So Brittany was never drug tested that night, but there were a lot of implications because she had struggled with substance abuse on prior occasions that she was, even though the only person who was proven to have substance abuse was Todd, who had four times the amount of meth that you would see typically when someone was arrested. And so, you know, he was basically, they describe it like the amount of meth he was on was like Superman. So, but in court, there were just a lot of implications that she was not sort of this perfect victim. She was a mom who had lost custody of her kids, um, was getting them back, but, you know, had prior substance abuse issues. And this idea of a perfect victim is something I spent a lot of time thinking about and looking at because a lot of times courts will find the one or two or three things that are wrong with you. And the prosecutor will often, I saw, vilify women who have been abused and say, hey, you use substances. Hey, you didn't call the police. Hey, you know, why didn't you go to so-and-so for help? Why, you know, making implications about living in a trailer? There's always something that presents a woman as less than perfect and then saying, hey, you're not a perfect victim, so you don't deserve the self-defense claim. Um, And I saw that a lot with Brittany. They tried a lot throughout her stand your ground claim to say that she should have gone to the police, but she made the point that, hey, a lot of us in Alabama, in this corner of Alabama, have tried to go to the police. And she actually had been raped on a prior occasion and had called the police and she said that nothing was done. She said, there's no reason for me to have trusted the police. I I contacted my mom and my brother because I trusted them more to help. Um, And I think that was also, that's something that exists in an honor-based society. People go around institutions because they're not working and they try to solve the problems on their own. So that was something that was really interesting about her case and, you know, really frustrating to see. Now, Brittany strikes me as someone who just has incredible resilience. 
I mean, I watched a film. Uh, there's a Netflix documentary about her case. She comes across very compelling. So you've talked about gender, but what role does class also play in this case? Yeah, I actually was just rereading an interview that I did with a woman who runs the Women's Survivors Project in Illinois, and she was talking about how prosecutors and judges, people on the other side of the looking glass, her name is Rachel White Domain, um, she said people on the other side of the looking glass, they don't live these kinds of lives of enduring violence. So Brittany she, you know, she witnessed domestic abuse as a child. She had multiple abusive um, partnerships and a lot of studies show if you've experienced abuse or witnessed it as a child, you're more likely to experience it later in life. And so she kept enduring these kind of relationships. And Rachel White Domain was making the point that if you don't live that kind of life, you're, you know, an upper middle class or wealthy judge or prosecutor, you can't imagine what it's like to live a life of violence that goes on for decades when you finally take a moment to fight back after enduring it for so very long. And I saw with Brittany's case, you know, Brittany lived in public housing with her mom and brother, a lot of implications, you know, it's, it's never like outright stated, but there was another case I followed of another woman in Alabama named Devin Gray, who I also mentioned in the book, and she was living in a trailer and they kept bringing up the trailer. Um, So class is definitely something that is part of this. And I think the frustrating thing is maybe these things used to be more overt, but now they're still making their way into our criminal justice system. They're just more covert. They're more implied and suggested than they are um, overt. This is Writer's Voice, and I'm Francesca Rhiannon. We're talking with Elizabeth Flock about women who fight back against oppression by taking justice into their own hands. Her book is the Furies. Now, do you want to share the outcome of Brittany's case to us, or do you want to leave it to the readers? Well, actually, there's an update from how it was left in the book. So you can read the book and see where I left it. But um, very unfortunately, I must share that uh, Brittany recently got a had a parole violation for drinking. She had a drink and the judge decided that since she was struggling in an ongoing way with substance abuse to put her in prison until 2041. So that is something that is, was pretty shocking to me because ultimately, you know, Brittany fought her stand your ground case. You can see how it all goes down in the book. Um, She just fights and fights again. And her mom is her biggest advocate and so much happens, but uh, you know, ultimately These judges, I think, make the decision that criminalizing women who have experienced abuse or have substance abuse issues is a better idea than alternatives, which, you know, I I talk in the book, a lot of activists talk about more restorative and transformative ways of justice. Um, You know, in Brittany's case, I think she would say, "I, I just need help. You know, I need help with substance abuse, like rehabilitation and counseling. I need counseling for the PTSD I have. Um, And instead, she's put in jail and prison for it. So it's incredibly frustrating to see those as the as the solutions to these kinds of issues. You say that she's been put into jail for having one drink until 2041. Yeah. So essentially what the judge decided was that because she kept violating her parole, almost always with substance abuse, once it was for being out with her children on Halloween. But 
you know, they set you up, in my opinion, to fail with parole violations because they say, hey, you're a past substance abuser. If you even have a drop of alcohol, we're going to put you back in jail and you're on house arrest for the next, uh, you know, five years or whatever. And then if you even step outside, you're going to be in violation. And I think almost all of us can imagine that we might go insane sitting inside our house um, for years on end. And so basically the judge said that because you keep violating parole, I'm going to give you your original sentence that you didn't even get until 2041. So it's pretty shocking. And uh, I definitely want to share that with listeners who might feel compelled to get involved in the community, in their community or uh, about cases similar to Britney's or about Britney's case, because this is something that is incredibly frustrating. Is she appealing that? Can she appeal that? I mean, we have the example of an ex-president who seems to be able to appeal every single little motion and sidestep accountability for the most heinous of crimes against our democracy. Can she appeal this? Yes. Yeah, she's absolutely appealing it. And in the meantime, she is signing up for college classes while in because she doesn't know when she'll get out. And I think she's been in and out so many times. She doesn't know what to think. She could get out tomorrow or she could get out in 2041 in her mind. In in my mind, I'm pretty certain she's not getting out till 2041. But I think, you know, Brittany holds on to hope and feels like she's she was justified in her actions that night. Um, a lot of women in her community who experienced abuse stood up and um, stood with her. And I think she feels like she has a lot of faith in God and she hopes and and feels that she will get out earlier and, you know, maybe, maybe she will. But uh, yes, certainly her lawyer is appealing. And why do you think that she won't get out until 2041? I just have absolutely no um, uh, faith in the criminal legal system in Alabama that I saw. Um, I think that the goal is to punish, not to help. If you think about the stated goal of our prisons, it is to protect society, but also to rehabilitate people. I never see the second as something that is actually putting being put front and center. I think they would rather uh, lock people away. And, you know, they're only building more private prisons in Alabama now to house more people. They're denying people parole. They have one of the lowest parole rates in the country, if not the lowest. Um, so, uh, things are actually trending in a negative direction there in terms of um, letting people out of jail or prison. So, yeah, it's not it's not a good scene, even though, you know, we have conversations about abolition of prisons elsewhere in the country. I think there are definitely still a lot of places in this country that are trending in the opposite direction. Now, Elizabeth Flock, in this book, in The Furies, Women, Vengeance and Justice, you say that Brittany did make a difference uh, in her community, that her case made a difference in spite of the fact that it doesn't seem to be helping her. What is the difference that she made there? And then what is the kind of systemic change that's necessary? Yeah, so that was a big question I had. You know, I went into this book with the question, can violence be helpful? Because I was constantly observing situations of social justice situations where people took to the streets and even, you know, did property damage or got violent. And I felt like it did move the needle. And I just wanted to know, can it be helpful? And because I, you know, sort of grew up a pacifist and just wanted to know that answer. And I, I did feel like in Brittany's case and in the other women's cases that 
there was a change that happened as a result of them violently fighting back. And in Brittany's case, I think a lot of local women felt like this woman speaks for me. I too have been abused. I too went to the cops or courts for help, did not get help. I know that if I also fought back, I would be criminalized, but at least she did. And I did see the police ultimately recording and reporting more domestic abuse. So prior, a lot of women told me, hey, we we reported our domestic abuse. We reported our rape. Nothing happened. And suddenly I saw after Brittany's case, a lot more domestic and sexual abuse cases being registered locally. I noticed that um, more things were being categorized as assault instead of harassment. I think before the police were trying to categorize it as more low level than it was. So I do think she made a change locally. And uh, Francesca, will you remind me of the second question you asked? What kind of systemic change do you feel is necessary? Oh, I mean, in terms, you know, in general, I think we have to look at self-defense in a broader way. I think we need to understand that sometimes self-defense doesn't look like two men getting into a bar fight and um, one of them fighting back violently. Sometimes self-defense is more complicated, but at its root, the systemic change we need is with our institutions. This book is really a critique of cops and courts um, and governments that do not respond to the epidemic of gender-based violence that exists in this world with one in three women in the U.S. and worldwide experiencing domestic and sexual abuse. There is a reason these women are fighting back, and it's because the institutions that are supposed to be protecting them are not. And so people are taking matters into their own hands. So to me, that's the systemic change that I think we need um, is to really look at our institutions and ask, are they helping women and how can we transform them or revolutionize them in order to have them more directly um, and adequately respond. So let's move to India. Let's talk about Anguri Daharia. It's a complicated story because it's not only about gender oppression, but also about caste oppression. Well, I guess Brittany's also was about class oppression as well. Because Anguri is a Dalit, a term that, as you point out in the book, means broken. They used to be called the untouchables. Talk about the intersectionality of caste and gender oppression in the case of Anguri Dahariya. Yeah. And, you know, if we think about the term intersectionality, these issues are all interrelated and everyone's struggles are interrelated. So, yes, with Brittany, it was class and, and, and gender. And with Angori, it's caste and gender. Um, so yeah, she's a low caste woman and her motivating force for creating this vigilante gang was that a high caste person owned the land that she was paying for slowly for her family and ultimately decided to just snatch it back after she had paid into it for years she did fight back in that moment when her landowner tried to evict her simply because the upper caste people didn't want her and her family there. They didn't want a low caste family living there, which we could apply to, you know, a lot of different situations in our own country. Um, and so she fought back with a cane and they grabbed hold of her hair. And anyways, basically over time, she got the idea that, hey, I can make a difference if I form a group of women who are mostly low caste, all women, um, actually ultimately some men joined, to fight back against the issues that women are facing by 
being oppressed by those who are upper caste and mostly men and, you know, landowners and all of that. And so she did. And she, she started by asking, helping one local woman who was being abused and then talking to another and another and telling them her eviction story. And, and ultimately she formed a group of hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands, it was hard for me to get a count um, because I just went from place to place meeting so many women who are part of her gang, which is called the Green Gang. They all wear saris that are green and wield these bamboo canes. They don't have any online presence. Most people don't even have cell phones. So it's all through word of mouth. So it was difficult to get a count. But um, over the course of years, they fought back against different offenders in different ways. They took on an electricity official who was um, stealing f- money from a lot of uh, low-caste families who didn't have a lot of money to begin with. And as you can imagine, this is a huge problem. The women actually dressed this man up in a sari and bangles to shame him and say, if you're going to be uh, like a woman, sit at home, um, which I thought was interesting. And so they use different tactics. They use canes. Sometimes they use shame. Um, sometimes they just threatened people people. But all of it was at the root was sort of that, hey, as low caste women, we're being treated in a way where we are again and again over decades, if not centuries, um, being met with violence. And we go to the local cops, we go to the courts, nothing happens. We're met with derision there because we are women, because we are low caste. So we need to take matters into our own hands. And she's part of a long tradition of female bandits in India. This is something I had no idea about. Yeah, I thought, you know, that's actually where this book began. I I began my career as a reporter in Mumbai, India. And at the time, uh, back when I was like 21 years old, I found out about a woman named Fulan Devi, also called the Bandit Queen, who was a low-caste woman um, forced into a child marriage. Uh, She fled that marriage and became a bandit. She joined a group of bandits, and she violently avenged the violence against women, and particularly low-caste women in the area. She was called the Bandit Queen because, man, her measures were extreme. She once killed a town of 20 men, in a village called Bamai, and it was a major national news story. And, you know, she led this, this gang of all men. And, you know, she once paraded a rapist around town with the butt of her rifle. And, you know, I'm naked on all fours. So she had these really extreme, larger than life um, ways of enacting justice. She ultimately was caught by police. Um, Her story is just legendary. She went on to become a politician when she got out of jail fighting for women. So Angori is not the first. And actually, she was emulating the bandit queen. Um, she didn't use guns. She used canes. But if you think canes are kind of like a silly thing, actually, a lot of them are tipped with steel and you can kill a person with them. The British used it against Indian people during colonization. So it's actually no joke. You can <laughs> be quite wounded by canes. But um, but yeah, so there's a lot of Angoris and bandit queens out there. And Angori was just one that I chose to focus on. But there's more cropping up even today. So it's a long tradition and it, and it continues. This is Writer's Voice, and we're talking with Elizabeth Flock about her book, The Furies, Women, Vengeance, and Justice. It investigates the role and necessity of women-led violence in response to systems built against women. You know, what strikes me is that in India, where you assume that uh, women are more oppressed than here, and probably in many ways they are, that 
a female bandit who kills quite a number of men gets a short enough sentence that she can get out and, and run for office and win, whereas Brittany Smith in Alabama is in jail uh, until 2041 for defending herself. Yeah, no, that's a good point. When the bandit queen was arrested, she was able to, she was quite clever, and she was able to make a deal with police about when she would get out. But, you know, it, it didn't all go well for her. Her uterus was actually removed. She got a hysterectomy while in prison against her against her will because the prison doctor said, I don't want her breeding any more Fulan Devies. So things did not go quite as well for her. But I, I, I agree with your point. I mean, the... You know, it's as a reporter who goes around the world, it's not like I go to these far flung places and feel like, wow, it's so much more unjust for women here. I feel like that lack of justice extends to right in our in our very backyard. It's just more hidden and, and you know, less obvious and less apparent until we really look at things and examine what's really going on. Now, Elizabeth Flock, you mentioned before that you grew up a pacifist. Anguri Daharia was urged originally before she started her group to create a nonprofit to help poor women. Why did she decide that violence and intimidation was actually a better tactic? She, She liked the idea of a nonprofit. She just didn't think it would work. She had seen nonprofits work in the area for years, for decades. And, you know, there were peaceful solutions that were offered. There was a local phone line that police... Um, started where women could anonymously report um, incidences against them of violence. But Angori thought that's a great idea and also silly, like um, a woman anonymously reporting a rape, let's say, even though she's anonymous, if they're, if they're going to go and arrest those, um, let's say, two men who raped a woman, they're going to know who reported that rape. And the other powerful men in the village might be upset that that woman reported it. And then enact more violence against her. So um, she felt that these peaceful solutions actually don't work. They don't teach men to stop the violence. They just cause women to experience more violence. Police are not on the side of oppressed women. They're not responsive to them. And courts in India drag on at a glacially slow pace. Um, Cases are wildly behind schedule. So if you go and report something, you're not going to get your case heard for maybe a decade um, sometimes. And so she felt like, hey, there's really only one way out. It's like, I mean, I think she compared at one point to standing up to a schoolyard bully, like, you can try to tell that bully to stop all you want, but only when you want, when you stand up to them for the first time will they actually stop. And, you know, an, another woman in her gang told me, if we did not fight back violently, I would end up dead. And it, I found it hard to argue against that point. So now let's move to Chichek Mustafa Zibo uh, in Syria. Her story differs from the other women in that she became, as you said before, a freedom fighter for her people, the Kurds. And she's Part of a uh, a Kurdish liberation movement, uh, the YPJ, that actually supports gender equality and and promotes women's liberation. So tell us about that movement, that aspect of the movement. Yeah, so the YPJ is just wildly interesting. And when they were fighting ISIS, they got a lot of media coverage. But I think I, as I was following it at the time, I felt a little bit frustrated. I know the Kurds certainly did that they were presented in this sort of romantic, almost sexualized way of like, wow, look at these women wielding Kalashnikovs in the middle of rural Syria, 
in fatigues, these beautiful women fighting back against terrorists, taking matters into their own hands. And of course, that's super interesting. And that is all true. But I knew that there was so much more going on there. And I just wanted to understand a lot more about the roots of this. And Kurdish activists had written that they were somewhat frustrated with the exoticizing coverage, because there is such a long tradition in um, Kurdish history as well of women warriors and women fighting back. So yeah, so I spent more time just interviewing one fighter in depth and then many others as well. But Chichek, um, you know, she grew up the daughter of a family that was involved in Kurdish rights issues, as many Kurdish families are, because they are an ethnic minority that has been oppressed in Syria, as in many of the other countries that they live, Turkey, Iran, other places. And so she grew up hearing about that and she grew up wondering about gender inequality. And so when she heard about the YPJ, which was an all-female militia that was formed, you know, during amid the the chaos of the Syrian civil war to fight for the Kurds, but also to fight for women's rights, because Kurdish women have always had such a powerful voice, she joined and she became a fighter overnight at age 17. And yeah, so as those women are fighting for safety in their war-torn region, fighting against the Islamic terrorists that that popped up at the time, um, they were also saying, hey, um, within Kurdish society, within Syrian society, there's still massive gender inequality. A lot of women are just expected to cook and clean at home for the rest of their lives or are enduring domestic and sexual abuse at home. And um, it is only by picking up um, arms that you are going to respect us. And a lot of them said it was only once I picked up a gun that men in the area started saying, hey, we actually do respect these women. And certainly when they were instrumental in vanquishing ISIS, they said, now we really have the respect of men. A culture of honor rewritten in a in a feminist way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and rewritten with by taking up arms. And, you know, I think that's something that I constantly struggled with was it wasn't necessary for them to take up arms. But I think a lot of us would say we are okay with violence as self-defense and we're okay with violence during war. But what exactly does that look like? Because once you start looking very closely at war, it's quite messy. Um, and that was the case with Chichek too. It, you know, uh, the Kurds all follow a leader called Abdullah Ocalan, who's somewhat a cult-like figure uh, in the West, many places designate him as a terrorist. Um, you know, the, the saying of one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. Um, and so some people would argue that the YPJ themselves are terrorists. The YPJ are actually supported by, and, and their um, partner militia, the YPG, which is more men, are supported by the U.S. So the U.S. does not consider them terrorists, but it's complicated. It's not a straightforward, simple thing where they have these perfect women just, you know, fighting ISIS and, and winning. It's when Chichek would describe her kills to me, they made me rather uncomfortable because she would talk about the joy of murdering ISIS men and how vengeful and joyful she felt just slaughtering them. Um, but you can understand why when you look at what ISIS was doing to the region. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not uncomfortable. Right. And when we say what they were doing, what they were doing in particular also to women, enslaving them from young girls, uh, just the use of rape as uh, a common expected um, tactic of war against the local women. You know, it's just horrifying. And now tell us about this region 
Tell us about Rojava. Yeah, so Rojava is a corner of northern Syria. It translates to the west or the land where the sun sets. And it is basically the Kurds' attempt to, amid the chaos of war, carve out a autonomous region for themselves. Um, if we look at what's happening in Palestine and Israel right now, um, you know, the Kurds have a similar fight for for self-determination, for a land of their own. They feel really oppressed in Syria and Turkey and elsewhere, as I mentioned. Um, and so they basically said, okay, there's all this chaos of war. It's all up for grabs. Um, you know, people were revolting against um, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Um, there's terrorists here. You know, it's totally chaotic. And they said, this area is mostly Kurds anyways. We're going to take we're going to take it as peacefully as we can. And we're going to say that all people have the right to live here and we're going to peacefully coexist. Um, but this is going to be, you know, a homeland for for Kurds. And we're going to call it Rojava. And it and, you know, it's. It's been complicated since they've done that. Some people have said that the Kurds have not peacefully coexisted, that they're not tolerant to others. The Kurds have said that they are and they're trying their best. Um, it's always complicated when um, different people try to coexist peacefully um, next to each other, of course. But they, I think, captivated the world with their um, ideals that they put into a constitution, which was um, surprising to people that this was existing in this corner of the Middle East where they said, hey, we want peace for all people to peacefully coexist. We want total gender equality. We want women to make up 40% of our government at the very least. And we basically want to want to create this autonomous area where we, we govern in a through interlinked councils. So it was all really revolutionary and amazing. Um, it got a lot of media coverage at the time, but still a lot of people that I speak to do not know about this. And I, I think it's a model for a lot of places that, you know, even the Basque region and other places that want to have, um, you know, total self-determination, they look at Rojava as a model. Um, but they're struggling right now. Um, they're, it's still really poor um, because of the war. Things are really dire. And so I think people are becoming fed up. They wish that Rojava was, you know, this wealthy, beautiful, peaceful place, but it's not in large part just because of the violence that surrounds them, but the Kurds are still fighting for it. This is Writer's Voice, and we're talking with Elizabeth Flock about her book, The Furies, Women, Vengeance, and Justice. And for you, what were the challenges? I mean, you said before you hadn't been a war correspondent, which is difficult in itself. Then you add on that you are a woman in this region where it lives of women are even more difficult. So what were the challenges to reporting this story for you? Oh, gosh, it was really difficult. I had to reckon with the fact that it was an extreme, the most dangerous assignment that I had been on. You know, you have to do a lot of preparation when you go to a region like that. And I was doing it as basically like a freelance journalist writing this book. So I was on my own. You make a lot of preparations for, you know, if you're in the event that you're captured. Um, I know that there were a lot of drone strikes. I actually dyed my hair because my hair is blonde and I just didn't want to stand out. And you have your flak jacket and, and helmet and you give your passwords to everyone that you know. And I took um, hostile environment training courses and consulted a lot of my friends and peers who are more seasoned war correspondents. You know, I'd lived in lots of places and I'd reported in dangerous places. It's not that I was just galvanting in there with no experience, but like I said, it was the most dangerous experience. And 
months, if not like a full year of preparation just for my first trip, because um, I felt like I want to be overprepared. You know, there's other many journalists who have gone to Syria and had difficulties. Um, you know, obviously, there's the case of James Foley and and other journalists who ISIS has killed and, and made an example of, and I did not want to be one of them, of course. And I, so I went to great lengths to prepare and I relied on really trusted local journalists who have extreme expertise in the region. And I, I felt safe, safe as, as safe as I could as a result. And actually the Kurdish region is quite receptive to, um, and protective of women. So I actually didn't feel as worried about myself as a woman being there because I was with the YPJ the entire time. You know, you can't, you don't really feel more safe than being with a all-female militia wielding Kalashnikovs um, with you at all times. <laughs> but, um, but it was scary nonetheless. I mean, I, I flew into Iraq and then crossed the border technically illegally from Iraq to Syria, from one Kurdish region to another, but it's technically illegal. And had the Assad regime caught me, I would have been breaking the law. So but I went back multiple times and, and it worked. And I largely credit that to the local journalists that I worked with and um, the YPJ. So finally, what brought you to this story? Because right up front, you reveal that you too have been the victim of assault. Yeah. So sometimes as a journalist, you go into a story and you feel like, I don't even know why I'm doing this story. And we're all supposed to be these objective, neutral arms distance observers. And, you know, largely traditionally, that has been the case of what you're supposed to be. But I just don't believe that's true. I think everyone goes into journalism and reporting with their biases and their reasons. And I think it's better if you're upfront about that, especially if you're doing, you know, it's one thing to be a newspaper reporter reporting on different stories every day, but to report on something for five years, you have a reason. And my reason was that, yeah, I had experienced uh, sexual assault and other violations as many women have. And I, I had lingering questions about what if I had fought back and I was really angry at myself that I hadn't, and that I just kind of froze. And so I wanted to know what would have happened if I did. Um, I think when I've shared this book, a lot of women just reply relatable and that makes me sad. And I know that it's also true. A lot of us, I think we watch female vigilante movies and TV shows and, you know, the girl with the dragon tattoo or Kill Bill or, you know, these depictions of female vigilantes, I think, because we wish we could be them. And I realized that I wished I could be them. I wanted to have fought back instead of to have just passively endured that. But I wanted to look at it in a real way as a journalist and really ask, like, is this a good thing or does it just start a cycle of violence that never ends? Um so I spent, you know, years talking to these women to try to answer that question. So it was really, it was really personal for me, for sure. Mm. Now, you're the host of a podcast, Blind Plea. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So I realized a lot of times I do these stories and they just go to one place and it's more helpful if they all feed into each other and we're telling stories in all kinds of ways now. So I write books, but I also write magazine pieces and I worked on that documentary about Brittany. And um, when the opportunity came around for a podcast, um, a podcast uh, company called Lemonada said, hey, we want to do another podcast. We did one about an abused woman fighting back and being criminalized for it. Do you have any stories? And I, I, you know, sort of darkly laughed at that because I have hundreds of stories. And I 
I told them, you know, the story I would want to tell is that of Devin Gray, who I mentioned earlier on this in this podcast. And Devin Gray um, is a woman also in Alabama who fought back against abuse and was criminalized for it. But the reason I wanted to tell her story is because no one had told it. It didn't even get covered by the press, which I think largely is because she's a black woman who killed her white abuser. And um, I think people just weren't interested in that story. Like I was actually have spent a lot of time thinking about why does everyone want to know Britney's story of a white woman who killed her rapist? And why does no one want to know the story of a black woman who killed her abuser? But I think the amazing thing was that this podcast company said, I think a lot of people do want to hear that story. It's just that the local media didn't cover it and didn't think people wanted to know that story. And it turns out a lot of people did because millions of people listen to to Devin's story and um in this 10 episode podcast that we did on her story and um it's actually one with a happy ending so not all the stories I tell are so depressing um but uh but yeah it it, it did look at uh the criminal legal system in Alabama and its failures in different ways with the parole system and the prison system and the cool thing about podcasts is you get to go really in depth on different pieces of it just like in a book and so uh yeah we told uh, Devin's story and about how she took this blind plea which is when you take a guilty plea but you don't know what sentence you're going to get which to me was just an insane practice that that even exists and so we dealt we delved into that practice and yeah it was another way for me to tell the story of women fighting back but you know there's so much more that goes into that than just just that that simple story. Now, curse me, I said that was finally, but I'm thinking maybe our listeners would like to know what kind of resources are out there if they're facing a similar situation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, RAIN, R-A-I-N-N, is an excellent organization for anyone who has dealt with sexual assault. The National Domestic Violence Hotline um, is also an incredible resource that you can call or reach on the computer in a secure way and dip out of quickly um, if you're in an abusive situation. And there's also so many local nonprofits, probably one near you. If you don't want to reach out to cops or courts, I would recommend um, there's so many nonprofits working on the issues of domestic and sexual abuse run by survivors that can be there and help you. And if you or you know someone who is criminalized for fighting back, there's an amazing organization in the U.S. called Survived and Punished, and it helps free women who have fought back. And if you want to get involved in this issue, I would suggest um, looking them up because they're doing incredible work on helping women who are criminalized for fighting back in really transformative ways. Well, Elizabeth Flock, uh, this has just been a terrific conversation about your terrific book, The Furies, Women, Vengeance, and Justice. I want to thank you so much for joining us here. Thank you so much, Francesca. I really appreciate it. Elizabeth Flock, go to writersvoice.net to read or listen to a sample from The Furies. Next up, the unintended consequences of trying to protect ourselves against natural disasters. Stay tuned after the break.
Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Go to writersvoice.net to find more great content, including web-only features like interview transcripts and extended interviews. Next up, the unintended consequences of trying to protect ourselves against natural disasters. We talk with environmental journalist Stephen Robert Miller about how not to go about trying to protect ourselves from natural disasters. Two of the examples in his book, Over the Seawall, feature responses to climate disruption. One is a cautionary tale about Arizona's flawed attempts to save its water supplies as climate change causes mega droughts in the Southwest. The other is a positive example of how communities in Bangladesh are countering the impact of increased floods. And the third example is a source of the book's title. It's about Japan's ham-fisted response to the tsunami of 2011, which killed nearly 20,000 people, a response that possibly has only made things worse. Over the Seawall is a thought-provoking treatment of the unintended consequences of policies of disaster response. Stephen Robert Miller, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thanks for having me. Well, this is a terrific book, Over the Seawall, Tsunamis, Cyclones, Drought, and the Delusion of Controlling Nature. As we confront climate change and the chaos that it brings, you say in the book, actually you say in the press release for this book, never have so many undertaken such a widespread hurried attempt to remake the world. And of course, when people do things in a hurried way and are dealing with turning turning a, an ocean liner around, a lot of mistakes can be made. And you factor in also the rigidity of the systems that already exist, uh, the kind of inertia of mindset and of reliance on technology. It's a book about unintended consequences. What are some of the common factors that define what you call maladaptive reactions to the climate crisis? There's quite a few. And I've, as I started to see more and more case studies from all around the world, you really notice, you know, these trends and threads between them. You know, one thing that might be surprising to people is that it doesn't necessarily mean that an adaptation failed. Like it's not a, it's not saying that a seawall completely utterly failed or a canal was incapable of bringing water to the desert where it was intended to bring water to. Maladaptation is actually about the unintended negative consequences of something that might actually work quite well in its initial and you know, intended purpose for the people it was intended to work for at the beginning. But what happens then is that you know these, these unintended consequences get passed down to other people. And sometimes those people are just downstream, you know, when like a seawall built on the coast pushes the wave force on another community farther down the coast that doesn't have a seawall. Or sometimes it's people down in, in time, so generations down the line feel the effects of an adaptation. But what I found over and over again was it pushes the impacts onto people of like another class, you know, so wealthy people can afford to build something to protect themselves, but sometimes the impacts, you know, the effects of, of what they build hurt people of a lower class that don't have the money to protect themselves. So that kind of environmental justice aspect I found to be pretty consistent in a lot of the maladaptive examples I came across. You also have some other 
criteria for identification of maladaption? Yeah, so um, one of the big ones, of course, is the rigidity of systems. So maladaptive decisions, you know, pr projects will often lock people in to doing things down the road a certain way. So like if you were to build a big dam, right, the cost of building that dam and the the impact and the landscape and the, and the, the way you have to organize political and economic systems around the construction of that dam often mean that you end up using that dam for everything down the road. You don't just like put all that investment into this thing and then turn your back on it and go use something else, you know, choose a softer path, you might say. So maladaptive decisions often lock us in. They call it often technological lock-in. Um, another big one, of course, is they often will support and you know, kind of exacerbate the very problems that they're trying to stop. And one of the most obvious examples of this, although it's on a slightly smaller scale, is air conditioning. In cities like Phoenix or Houston, where people are running their air conditioners at full tilt in the middle of the summer, Unless your city is running on green, you know, clean energy, you're asking your utility to to burn a bunch of fossil fuels these days, mostly around here, you know, natural gas, in order to produce the coolant that you need to stay cool from climate change, um, the heat driven by climate change. So it's causing the problem that's that's actually trying to stop, or at least you know, trying to help you deal with. And the one that I think I came across most prevalently in all of these cases was the one that really for me was what got me interested in this book to begin with was the the false sense of security that these projects create and i came across that in in japan and bangladesh and where i'm from in the southern southern arizona in the desert the sense that everything is going to be okay and that these technological projects uh, these grandiose schemes are going to protect us from unseen harms in the future you know and often what i discovered is that that's that's not the case in fact they make us more vulnerable and you tell three stories in the book one with japan and as you mentioned bangladesh and arizona why did you choose these stories and we should say the japanese story is not really a climate story but it illustrates the issues that you're raising here. And that's the reason I chose it. Um, I was born in Pittsburgh, but I grew up in Arizona and I moved there when I was young and I had the opportunity to kind of experience, you know, different landscapes. And when I got to Arizona as a kid, I remember being, even as a young kid, being kind of surprised and confused. And the, the older I got, the more confused I became about how many people were moving to a place where something as basic as water, you know, was a serious concern. And yet it didn't seem like people really like most people around me, never seem to consider the, the risks around that issue. So I always knew I was going to write about Arizona, but I wasn't quite sure what I was looking at there. You know, I just something that kind of had been bothering me for years. I did a fellowship at the University of Colorado, the Ted Scripps Fellowship there. And while I was there, I took some classes on environmental ethics and psychology. And I ended up meeting a researcher named Amanda Carrico, who was traveling and working in Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. And she invited me to come along one time when she went to Bangladesh. When I got there, I saw the sea, the, uh, the embankments built along the Ganga River, River Delta and saw how widespread this issue of maladaptation was in this area. But still, for me, it felt kind of big and hard to wrap my head around what was really happening there. It was later, actually, when I came across the research about the 2011 tsunami in Japan and how the seawalls there had been considered to be maladaptive in some communities. And that, for me, really drove this whole thing home. And it 
it made it you know, this kind of wonky academic idea. It turned into something that I could wrap my head around. It was like the story in a nutshell. You know, people in a very small amount of time impacted by a, a vast, immense, huge event. Um, you know, you could really see this story play out in a way that I felt I could grasp. So that's why, you know, for me as a writer, I understood the thing when I got to Japan. And so I wanted the reader to start there as well. Yeah, and it's really, of course, a terrifying story. I mean, I know I watched, and I'm sure many of our listeners watched the whole disaster unfold there. And it really also illustrates the problem of technological lock-in. I mean, Japan has seawalls. What is the problem with the seawalls that they built before the tsunami and after? They were Almost good enough was the biggest problem with those seawalls, I think. And that's why they created that false sense of security. They had been built up over decades, you know, post-war. Japan is investing heavily in um, communities and uh, infrastructure to allow for industry, you know, along the coast. Um, I mean, in Japan, you've got an area that's around the size of California with quite a few you know, more, pe many more people than California has. Um, and also has a lot less flatland than California has. So the coastline, of course, is a really important place for people to live. And the country had invested for years in seawalls along the coast. Then around 1960, the Chilean earthquake hit. It sent a tsunami barreling across the ocean, hit uh, the coast of Japan. And by the time that wave got to Japan, it was just tall enough that it did not overrun the existing seawalls. And so that made people in Japan feel like the seawalls that had been built over the year, the post-war years were adequate. They were going to stop from, you know, they were going to save them. Well, then 2011 hit, and that wave was unlike anything anybody had ever experienced. It's, I mean, the run-up height in some towns was 130 feet, like 130 feet up the land. None of the walls that had been built previously were intended to stop a wave at that size. And the protocols that were in place, the evacuation routes, and nothing was intended to deal with a disaster on that level. But the problem was the people had become confident in the protections that did exist. And so they stayed put well, behind those walls. When the warnings came in, the initial warnings that really underestimated the wave height, people stayed home behind the walls thinking that they were going to be safe. And in some cases, people actually stood on the walls taking photos and watching the wave as it came in up until the moment they were washed away. You would think that people would imagine when they're building something <laughs> that they have a little bit of humility that, okay, this hasn't happened as far as we know in our past, but things could change. What gets in the way of the mindset that is just looking backward, and as you point out in the case of Japan, did not even look backward long enough? I mean, I think, sadly, one of the most boring but important answers is the cost. So, you know, post-2011, Japanese government decided to start building more walls and taller walls in the wake of this disaster. Even after the previous walls had formed and that had proven inadequate and even, you know, maybe cost some people their lives, the response was to build even taller walls. However, the walls that they're building now are not tall enough to have stopped the wave that came in 2011. So a lot of people along the coast are wondering, why are we bothering? Why, why are we bothering to build these huge concrete structures that wall us off from the coastline? And we all know that this wouldn't even be enough to stop another wave of that size. And the answer is just basically because of the, the huge cost of building a wall of that size. There has been opposition uh, to the walls. You met an opponent, uh, a man named Takahashi, who opposed the building of bigger walls. 
So talk about the impact. First of all, talk about the impact of the walls. Why the opposition? And why hasn't Japan gone with more resilient responses, softer responses that could be cheaper, actually? Yeah. So people who, who I met in communities in Tohoku in the northeastern region that really opposed the walls did so often because they were part of the fishing community. And this is an area of Japan that some people had explained to me as being kind of like the American South. It's more rural, smaller towns. It's had a lot less investment over the years. And that was one of the reasons why, I mean, some people say that's one of the reasons why these huge walls are being built in Tohoku now is because the government is kind of coming in after years of being, you know, people saying that they have not done enough to protect the people of Tohoku. The government now is kind of going overboard on it. But in these fishing communities, you know, people for generations upon generations have grown up besides the ocean. They have a cultural as well as an economic connection with the sea and everything the sea provides for them. And so when these huge white and gray concrete walls started going up right along the coast, these people found themselves walled off, literally walled off from a huge piece of their personal identity and their culture and as well as their economy. People running tourist parts of the tourism industry in these towns told me about how, you know, why would anybody want to drive all the way up or take the, the uh, train all the way up from Tokyo just to stand around and stare at a wall? In, in our small town now. So there's a lot of concern around the, the economic impact of the walls, but also just the human aspect of living behind these structures. You know, you feel like you're in a prison when you're standing behind this, this huge wall. Why didn't they decide to move the town further up the slope, let's say, beyond the 130 feet? One of the things you talk about is also the role of self-interest and, and corruption. Does that apply here as well? I think Absolutely crazy thing I encountered in Japan is they actually have moved many towns. In fact, there's now kind of a, a multi-pronged approach to dealing with tsunami there. Some towns have been moved back out of the way of the destruction of 2011. Others have been elevated so that they've cut down mountainsides and brought in dirt and elevated towns above to a point where they think they would be safe in the future. But then even in those instances, they've still built the walls. And that's some of the thing that I think I recognize really got to the heart of the complaints among people who were opposing these walls was they said, why are you moving our towns and elevating our communities, doing all this other work, and then still building the wall? I mean, we still have to live behind this thing. To them, it was like, do one or the other. Japan also has a huge national park forest that runs along the coast. That's something like that's kind of soft, green infrastructure. So I don't think it's like, I don't want to say that Japan is not doing other things that's only building the walls because it actually has a multi-pronged approach. But the walls are certainly the biggest part of this whole thing. And they have been from day one. It's been understood. These experts came to these towns and said, we're going to do this. What do you want them to look like and how tall do you want them to be? And that's the only thing the community had any say in, even though even that was limited. To your other part of the question, yes, the concrete industry in, in Japan is huge. Um, and like I said before, this Tohoku region you know, in Japan is um, more economically depressed. It's generally older. Japan is an aging nation to begin with, but Tohoku is even older than the rest of the country. And building walls, pouring concrete, it generates income, it creates jobs, brings investment into these communities. And that's something that I've seen you know, elsewhere in the world. It's a, it's a huge problem with maladaptation, right? Is you jump to these conclusions, you jump to these decisions to, to build these things and protect ourselves thinking that, oh, great, the second hand of this is that's going to generate income and jobs and it's public work for the community. 
Stephen Robert Miller, in, in your book, Over the Seawall, as I said, we talked. you talked about three communities, but I'm going to jump to the last one, um, because from too much water to too little water, you go deep into what is going on in central Arizona. Now, this is a place I remember when I went and hiked the Grand Canyon, you know, a couple of decades ago. I said, oh, I said to myself, I'd love to live here. And then my immediate thought was, no, there's not enough water. Uh, so that's been a perennial problem. But much, much worse now. People are already losing access to water what is the situation now, and what does that area face? So, you know, the Phoenix, Tucson area, central Arizona area depends on largely on the Colorado River for its water. It gets water from other sources as well, uh, nearby streams and rivers and groundwater, but it really is heavily dependent on the Colorado River. And of course, the Colorado River has been shrinking. You know, it deals with, I mean, erratic snowfall and rainfall, but over the course of time, it, it appears to be shrinking. And that's obviously a significant issue for the seven states and Mexico and everybody else who depends on that river. Something that struck me in reporting this was I, I went into thinking about big, large scale infrastructure, you know, concrete and rebar. But a lot of times I came across softer forms of maladaptation, I guess you call it, like contracts and laws, legal frameworks that are just as maladaptive as a big as a canal or a seawall or something or an embankment. And in this case, it's the 1922 Colorado River Compact, which committed by law these the seven states and eventually Mexico to taking a certain amount of water out of the system, out of the Colorado River every, you know, every year. And it's not just that they totally underestimated the amount of water that was in the river. That's a the biggest part of the problem, perhaps, they said there was more water in the river than there was. But when they wrote the law, they committed the people, they committed the states to taking that amount of water out. And so that set the stage for each of the each of the states to depend on the river to suck as much of the water out as they could to get their full allotment, as much as they were allowed to take out. Because nobody's going to take less than they're allowed to, right? Because you want every drop you can get so that you can grow your cities, or you can grow your farms. And so that law committed people to using as much water as they could, and it committed to them to using more water than the river had to offer. So that's kind of like the legal framework that underlies this whole thing. You factor in climate change and dwindling river, extreme temperatures. Last year, Phoenix saw a record number of people die from exposure to heat. I think it was in the 500s. So you're dealing with a multi-pronged, I call it a you know death by a thousand cuts there in central Arizona, because it's not just the water, it's other things too, but the water is certainly the, the, the underlying factor. And you use the uh, situation, the case of a farmer, Jace Miller, to illustrate kind of the twists and turns of the story, first in terms of, you know, water rights, the use of the river, on the other hand, then the withdrawing of huge amounts of water from the aquifer, the uh, Central Arizona Project, which was this gymungous <laughs> canal, so tell us about Jace Miller and what he's been through and what he faces. So I relate to Jace, to be completely honest. And that's kind of an odd thing to say, because as an environmental reporter, you know, who's covered climate change for many years, talk about water issues in the West and farmers are the bad guys in a lot of these conversations. So they use about three quarters of the water, uh, some estimates say around 80% of the water that the whole region uh, needs. So they obviously play a huge part in um, the water crisis that we're experiencing, that the West is experiencing. And they often do it to grow crops that we don't even eat. People point that out all the time, you know, that these farmers grow hay, alfalfa, and cotton. Um, so you can't even make the argument that they're making food necessarily. 
Um, but still, you know, Jace is, we're around the same age. He's uh, mid thirties. He's has his first child was just born his first son. Um, he's a fifth generation farmer. Uh, his family grows alfalfa and cotton. Um, they started up around the Phoenix area and as the economy and development changed over the years, they were kind of pushed South. Now they're down by uh, Eloy near Picacho peak and kind of halfway between Tucson and Phoenix. And he's, you know, invested in this farm. Um, it's his whole life. It's, it's everything. He's, he's, he dropped out of college so he could work on the farm. You know, he's him and his dad is his grandpa, as much as grandpa can still work running this pro this, this, this family business. And he found out uh, about a couple of years ago now that he would be among the first farmers in the region to be cut off from the Colorado river because of a, a really complicated scheme of seniority and contracts on the river. And the fact that years ago, these farmers had gotten together and, and basically taken out a loan with the federal government to build the, to help build the central Arizona project, that canal you mentioned. So the construction of that canal brings Colorado river water to the middle of Arizona. That lifeline, it was, it was a lifeline for these farmers. It kept them in business after they had nearly sucked the ground dry from pumping over the decades. But the cost of building that canal turned out to be so immense that they could hardly afford its water. And many of them signed a deal, basically like a deal with the devil, that now put them in a position to be cut off from the from the Colorado River water now that there's a shortage on the river. We should also say it's not just the farmers who are using a huge amount of water. You talk about these huge water-intensive data centers like for Bitcoin, I mean, of all uh, useless, I mean, I, I think even alfalfa is a better use than Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of tend to agree. I think um, that, that's something that struck me about this. You know, there's so much, uh, this is such a complex issue, but I find so many times over and over again, people tell me that these farmers, this we shouldn't be growing in the desert. And if you just take the water from the farmers, we could put it into cities and there'd be plenty of room for cities to grow and grow and grow forever without any trouble. But why do we have to build a data center in Phoenix? You know, because there's, there's no earthquakes and, or hurricanes. I guess that makes sense. I understand that. But the cost of producing the energy for these data centers is still huge in Phoenix. There's there's a, an aspect to that to me, this kind of this, you know environmental justice aspect of like, how do we decide who gets to, who gets to stay? So farmers who have been there for generations, should they get pushed out so that we can have their water and use it to build data centers? I really grappled with this question of, you know, what kind of future do we want in these places and how are we investing in that future today? You know, what do we want it to look like? Do we want it? I mean, we can still have people living in Phoenix. I'm not arguing that everybody there should up and move, but I, it does make me think, you know, what's the best way to use the resources that we have there? And when you look at the amount of water necessary for these data centers and and the energy necessary for them, and just the, the energy and water necessary for the kind of sprawl that we have in these areas. And it's not just that so many people are moving to Arizona. It's one of the fastest growing places in the country, right? It's not just that all these people are moving there. It's the fact that they're moving there and living in, in like the least sustainable way possible. And given the challenges that this region faces, to me, that just seems, you know, astoundingly short-sighted. You've been writing this book for over 10 years, and the situation has only gotten more acute, so acute that governments have been kind of waking up and trying to do something about this. What has been the response lately? Have you seen any reason for more realism, or is it just same old, uh, same old? It's, it's, it's ebbs and flows, I think. So I wrote this book during the pandemic and did most of my most of the research during the pandemic. And because of that, you know, I was I had a very hard time getting into Bangladesh and into Japan. 
And so I started my reporting and writing with the Arizona section, which which appears last in the book. So the kind of the book was actually written in reverse. And it matters because as I was writing the Arizona section in particular, I was talking a lot about these plans to to build a pipeline to the Mississippi River and uh, plans to to build a desalination plant down in Mexico and then pipe that water up to Arizona from the Baja. Those plans are still in the works and, you know, still, I think, highly likely. But they're also political uh, entities. These, you know, this, this type of end type of adaptation always gets political in the end, right? Governor Ducey in Arizona is now out since I had finished writing, and Governor Hobbs now is in, and she is far more, I think, uh, realistic and has already started to put more emphasis on sustainability in the desert and thinking more long term about adaptation and trying to rein in the groundwater overuse and trying to combat the developmental sprawl. She's done more to affect that, I think, in the last couple of months, really, than her predecessor had ever even wanted to do. Um, so I think that's really encouraging. Of course, you know, Arizona is still a, a um, heavily Republican state, and that just matters because there's a lot less priority among that group to react to climate change and much more priority given to continued development in that in that area. So I wish I could say it's going one or the other. I see the governor's office doing some great things, and obviously lots of people, the Sierra Club works hard there and has been working hard there on common sense issues for conservation and sustainability, right? But you still have to contend with uh, legislators who are just frigging out to lunch. <laughs> That's the scientific term there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so we focused on maladaption. And one of the things you stress in this book, and we haven't even really gotten into all that much, although you've mentioned it, is the environmental justice aspect. I mean, we didn't talk about the Native Americans, the, the Navajo tribe, in Arizona or much about Bangladesh. But what about good adaptation? What are some of the criteria for good adaptation, in, including the social issues? So I'll, I'll pull an example from Bangladesh because it's something that I encountered while I was reporting there in the field. And it struck me as an excellent example of how we should be doing these things, you know, for a lot of different reasons. Um, so this comes out of the southwest corner of Bangladesh. And the issue there is that for centuries, largely Western powers in one form or another have built embankments or helped the country build embankments along the rivers. Bangladesh has anywhere, depending on who you talk to, anywhere from 230 rivers to 900 rivers that run through the land out into the Bay of Bengal. Um, and these rivers carry an enormous amount of sediment that washes off of the plains above them and the Himalaya Mountains. And the problem of building the canals is a very similar problem as we've seen here in the U.S. and Louisiana, just like the Mississippi River Delta. The, the rivers carry that sediment, and historically, as the rivers would flood naturally several times a season, that sediment would be deposited across the plain and actually built up the land that Bangladesh sits on. Bangladesh, the country, sits on about 12 kilometers of mud before you hit any kind of rock. But as those rivers have been embanked with, the, with these levees, what's happened is the rivers have been kept from flooding. So that sediment, rather than spilling the banks and spreading across the, the plain, that sediment stays in the channels. And it has caused the river bottoms to rise, which means the water table rises above it and means that there's less you know, room for flooding, less room for the rivers to grow. So when they do flood now, they flood really hard. And of course, people have built the communities around behind these embankments because they feel like they're safe. So the issue there is really managing the sediments. And people say, you know, Bangladesh is not about managing water. It's actually about managing sediment. 
So there's an idea that some people call it indigenous knowledge. It's based on indigenous knowledge and it's called tidal river management. And the idea is essentially to create these little pockets where the, the rivers are allowed to flood. We give space for the rivers to flood and we create areas where we direct the rivers into these pockets where the rivers deposit their sediment load and then wash back out to the, to the bay with less sediment. It's pretty ingenious. And I mean, it, it draws on this history of people living in this environment and, and living with the rivers. They have different names for the different types of floods. Um, it reminded me of, you know, what I've heard about uh, the Inuit and all the different words for snow. You know, it's like Bangladeshis know about floods. They're not necessarily afraid of floods, but they're afraid of are these floods that have gotten worse over the years because the embankments have really upped the ante. But they know how to live with seasonal flooding. And so this is a locally, you know, locally sourced solution that works with the environment it's built in. And that comes from the local people's knowledge of how to live in this place. It works for them rather than against them. And it was their idea rather than being something that was imposed upon them by some outside foreign aid group or USAID or you know, another country. But it only really works in this one corner of Bangladesh. It won't work in the, in the entire country and it won't work across the entire world. And that, I think, is such an important point because that's crucial to successful adaptation, I believe, now. It's, we always want simple solutions to complex problems. We want plug and play and we want replicable ideas something that works here that we can just build it everywhere. But that's not going to be adaptation. It's going to be solutions that that works in their specific environments for the people who live actually live there, you know. Um, and so this example does that. You're not going to be able to apply it even to the east coast of Bangladesh. It works in the west area of Bangladesh. But that, to me, is part of its strengths, not one of its weaknesses. That's a great example. Well, this is a terrific book and really an important one, Over the Seawall, Tsunamis, Cyclones, Drought, and the Delusion of Controlling Nature. Stephen Robert Miller, it's been so educational to talk with you about this book. Really wonderful. Thank you. Francesca, thanks so much for having me. Stephen Robert Miller is an award-winning science journalist whose work has appeared in National Geographic, The Guardian, Discover Magazine, and many others. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Listen again for free, read book excerpts, and sign up for the podcast at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. That's all we have time for on this broadcast. Make sure to go to writersvoice.net for the full interview with Stephen Robert Miller or sign up for the Writer's Voice podcast on your favorite podcast app. Stephen Robert Miller is an award-winning science journalist whose work has appeared in National Geographic, The Guardian, Discover Magazine, and many others. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Listen again for free, read book excerpts, and sign up for the podcast at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon.